Thank you for joining Lexia as we unpack the science of reading. To view the webinar version of this podcast, please visit the link included in the show notes. Enjoy. Welcome back to Science of Reading Week. I am your host, Cassandra Wheeler. I will also serve as your event moderator as we kick off and end today's session. I currently serve as the Senior Manager of Letter State Success with Lexia. And again, we are thrilled that you're joining us. All 14,300 of you. That number keeps growing every day. Do you all notice that? I keep trying to give you all the updated number. Today, we have a total number of registrants of 14,300 of you. And this is, again, our first ever week-long education event devoted to unpacking the science of reading and learning from some of the most respected minds in the national literacy community and celebrating the brilliant dedicated work of teachers implementing structured literacy in classrooms all across the country. Again, I will be here each day to kick things off with our star-studded group of presenters. And speaking of star-studded presenters, on day one, we kicked off our Science of Reading Week with the Dr. Louisa Motes and Lexia's Dr. Liz Brooke. Yesterday, we hosted an Ask Me Anything Q&A session with Donna Heitmanick, reading advocate and founder of The Science of Reading, What I Should Have Learned in College Facebook group, along with her fellow Facebook group moderator, Jennifer Sear. And today, we're going to get our minds right with Beyond the Brain, What Neuroscience Can Teach Us About Equity. Ooh, I can't wait to wrap my brain around this discussion. When we talk about the science of reading, we often think about the research into instruction and classroom best practices. Understanding how the brain functions when learning to read is just as important, especially when we talk about equity. So today, to help us expand our minds, we will be enlightened by Horacio Sanchez, a highly sought after speaker and educational consultant, helping schools to learn to apply neuroscience to improve educational outcomes. He presents on diverse topics like overcoming the impact of poverty, improving school climate, engaging in brain-based instruction, and addressing issues related to implicit bias. He is recognized as one of the nation's leading authorities on resiliency and applied brain science. Horacio has been a teacher, administrator, clinician, mental health director, and consultant to school districts all across the United States. Horacio sits on the True Health Initiative Council of Directors, a coalition of more than 250 world-renowned health experts committed to educating on proven principles of lifestyle as medicine. He is the author of the best-selling book, the Education Revolution, which applies brain science to improve instruction behaviors and school climate. His new book, The Poverty Problem, explains how education can promote resilience and counter poverty's impact on brain development and functioning. Is he a heavy hitter or what? <laughs> Joining Horacio is Maya Goodall. Senior Director of Emergent Bilingual Curriculum at Lexia Learning. Maya has worked in education for more than 20 years, teaching both nationally and 
internationally. Maya has a rich professional background that includes teaching in the classroom, coaching, training, and implementing and designing curricula with the measurable outcomes. She founded Lingual Learning, a curriculum company dedicated to helping students become confidently bilingual. Maya speaks three languages and has a Master of Education degree and a Master of Arts degree in Applied Linguistics. Uh, Lexia is not playing today. <laughs> Facilitating today's discussion is Carrie Larkin, who brings more than 20 years of special education experience to her role as Senior Education Advisor. Carrie began her teaching career secondary language arts and special education at Anacostia High School in Washington, D.C. Public Schools, or DCPS. She left the classroom to become the director of her teacher preparation program, which prepared and evaluated special education teachers in partnership with the George Washington University. Based on her leadership in teacher preparation, Carrie was hired back into DCPS by Michelle Ree through the master education program. From there, Carrie led special education as the director for academic programs and then senior director chief of specialized instruction until March 2021. In her current role at Lexia, Carrie leverages her experience in partnership with district leaders to increase educational equity through meaningful inclusion, evidence-based practice, and sustained professional learning. She is a passionate anti-racism advocate with an emphasis on meaningful inclusion and systemic change. Woo. Let's all start massaging our brains now to get ready for this discussion. So before I hand the reins to you, Carrie, let's get our audience to do today's poll. Is everybody ready? Here we go. Here's our poll question of the day. How concerned are you about closing literacy opportunity, the literacy opportunity gap among all learners and especially readers who are struggling? How concerned are you about closing the literacy opportunity gap among all learners and especially readers who are struggling? Is your answer today, not very much, we're addressing this already, or is it somewhat we really could do more? Or is your response very, we're not doing nearly enough? Or is there an other response? And you certainly are invited to drop that into the chat. And as we're looking, that chat is already filling. Oh, someone says urgent, yeah. Respond to the poll. How concerned are you about closing the literacy opportunity gap among all learners and especially readers who struggle? All right, still seeing some people adding some clarity into the chat. But now let's take a look at those results. What are the results from our audience that's joining us right here today? Mm -hmm. The majority of you, almost all of you, 86% say, as far as your level of concern, you are very concerned and you admit you're not doing nearly enough. We certainly hope today's conversation will challenge that for you. Some of you, 13%, said somewhat we could be doing more. Then on both ends of the spectrum, there's a 1% for not very much, 
we're addressing this already, so you don't really have a major concern. And then there are others of you that had some clarity that you dropped into the chat for further discussion. So as we think about these results, Carrie, I know you would love to respond to these results and also get ready to pick the brains of today's fabulous presenters. So before we close the poll out, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond and I will pass the baton to you. Thank you so much, Cassandra. Baton received. Uh, <laughs> when I have opportunity to go all over the country and talk to teachers and school leaders and district and state leaders and ask them, why do you show up to work every day? Their answer is unequivocally, I show up to work every day for every single student. I show up every day because children can and must learn to read. And we know that is on the hearts and minds of everybody who decided to uh, be with us today. Um, and I think most of us agree we are not doing enough. We have not closed that gap. We are expanding the science and there's so much promise in the science. And I'm just so excited that we have Horacio and Maya with us today to help us understand what our brains are doing when we learn to read and everything else that's happening to our brains when we're trying to learn to read and all the power our teachers really do have to help children heal from adversity and, and thrive in the classroom. So I'm just so excited for this hour that we have and very grateful for your energetic introduction. I wish you could open all of our meetings, Cassandra. I can actually see some of the comments coming up in the chat, and I believe there will be time at the end of our Q&A session um, that we can go into the chat and actually um, pull out some of the questions from some of our participants. Uh, but I would love to open Horacio and Maya uh, with this idea that many of the people joining us today have some sense of the science of reading uh, and what the implementation of that science looks like in the classroom. We have teachers and administrators and reading specialists um, who are beginning to understand and implement this science. I'd love to talk about it today uh, from a neuroscience perspective and get a better and more clear understanding of what is happening to our brains when our brains are learning to read. Horacio, would you tell us a little bit about what's happening in our brains when we are learning how to read? I thought about this question and I think um. I'll, I'll give you two big themes rather than going through the detail. Mm -hmm. um, to set this up, I think we need to consider certain things. One, when we're learning something new, our brain expends a lot of energy and it can't maintain that level of energy too long. When we get good at it, the energy level goes down. When we hit a level of mastery, the, it's almost automated and the level of energy is very low. That's one thing to remember. The next thing is that we actually don't multitask. And I, I know you got 1,700 people out there telling you I'm a great multitasker. And the reason you don't know you suck at it is because your brain does an interesting thing when you multitask. There is conscious monitoring and subconscious monitoring. So your brain will focus on one thing and there's where your energy is. While you're not focusing on this, your brain subconsciously monitors the other thing and you're unaware that the performance is dropping. So if you multitask with more things than two things, the performance is even worse. So the brain doesn't multitask very well. So these two things start to tell us something very important. 
One of the largest studies ever done on reading basically looked at the year where kids start to move from words and recognition of words and sentences to comprehension. And they bring in poor readers, average readers, and superior readers, put them under fMRI, and had them read a paragraph. And here's what we saw with the poor readers. Their brain expended so much energy on just recognizing letters and sounds and even sight words. And there was something funny that happened when they had these other words that showed us no recognition. When they grinded through the paragraph by the end of it, comprehension was really low. Then they looked at the average reader and they found out letters and sounds, fairly automated. Sight words, fairly automated. Most of the energy was expelled in definition of words and their meanings. At the end of the paragraph, hmm, comprehension pretty good. When they looked at the superior reader, here's what they found. Probably a blip on recognition of letters and sounds, sight words, and the words in the paragraph. Boom, all this energy happened on comprehension. That's the first thing I want to let you understand. One of the things we now know is there has to be a level of automation with age-appropriate recognition for your brain to truly do this well. There's another thing that's surprising to us that right around between third and sixth grade, the brain does an interesting shift when it comes to reading. Everybody goes left hemisphere, left hemisphere, language, left hemisphere. Children actually do a lot of work when it comes to language in the right hemisphere. The brain does an interesting transition between third and sixth grade when it starts to shift to a more weight on the left hemisphere. What is causing that? It seems that the point when we start to go towards the emphasis of comprehension, the brain starts to shift. And here's what we see happening around third to sixth grade. The kids who have a level of automation and are moving towards comprehension are making that transition and the kids who are not don't. So what's at stake right here is love of reading because you're watching your friends read are getting something from it, are energized to do it, and they're because they're getting something, they'll do more. And if you're not doing that, if you're still grinding, you oftentimes become the person who doesn't want to engage in reading around that time. And two other things happen at this point. When your brain is freed up for comprehension, your brain is freed up for imagination. Mm -hmm. And so people who really love reading, while they read, they imagine things. And that makes reading exciting and beautiful. It also frees up the brain for creativity. And that's why some of the best readers start to not only read, but start to think about how they can create their own stories. And so it becomes a time crunch. There is a time in the evolution of the brain that seems to be a point where we make some transition. Girls seem to do it a little bit earlier. Boys tend to do it a little bit later. But if we don't get that transition to fluency there, it seems to be a lot more difficult after that point. And so we start to know automation becomes important and it's critical. And oftentimes automation requires repetition and repetition allows the brain to get to the place where I've done this so often 
becomes easy. And that's why people who, kids who get the same stories read to them over and over and over again, guess what happens? They start to know that story and then they start to think about, imagine, they start to create. And that's the beauty of repetition. And I think sometimes our pace, our speed for the kids who don't do it well goes against us because those kids probably need a greater level of repetition. I'm a second language learner and I'll tell you right now, if we kept pace with what I was supposed to learn because I wasn't doing the language, I couldn't keep that pace. It was the things that I heard over and over again that gave me automation so I could bring those things back quickly and my brain just couldn't do it. So to be honest with you, when I was learning English, my best teacher was commercials <laughs> because I heard them over and over again. Horacio, I'm so grateful you brought in your personal experience as a language learner because that's such a lovely bridge to bring in Maya and her expertise in applied linguistics. And we're starting from this place of the learning brain and what's happening to our brain when we're learning to read. And Maya, what is happening to our brain when we're learning to read and when we are learning in multiple languages? Well, I love that. I love those connections, Horacio. Um, so what we know about the bilingual child, someone who is a simultaneous bilingual, someone who learns two languages at the same time at home, maybe their caregivers are speaking a language, maybe they're learning, you know, up until age five, that would be a, a simultaneous bilingual. And we know from brain scans, those same fMRIs and EEGs and different ways to measure brain activity, that the learners, first of all, babies are born with the capacity to hear every single sound, every phoneme that all humans make on planet Earth. The babies are born with the capacity to hear every single sound. And so if you're introducing all of those sounds to a child at birth, um, they will learn to discriminate those sounds. They can understand the differences between the two languages. They're listening for prosody. They're listening for sounds. And this sustained co-activation of two languages helps a learner or helps a child, a person, a human being. I was, it, they're not just always learners in classrooms, but just the person is they're sustaining this co-activation and this attention. And so what that means is they're um, ability to maintain focus, to maintain concentration, and for memory, which is really important in that repetition, what Horacio was just talking about, is heightened. And we know that that left hemisphere that is so connected to reading and comprehension and language is actually elevated in a bilingual brain. So the, the left hemisphere actually gets accelerated in its growth when there are two languages. And I, this conversation is really, really important because in my own career, in my own teaching career, I have lived through English only laws being passed in my state and also in states around me. And the impetus for passing such laws or talking about English only has been this erroneous idea that one language will inhibit the learning of another language. And we know that that's completely untrue now. And we know that actually two languages helps a person 
you know, one language helps a person learn the second language. If you're a simultaneous bilingual or a sequential bilingual, we can see that that left hemisphere, that brain, that frontal cortex actually grows. So if you're like me and you um, maybe grew up learning and speaking English, I personally come from a Latino background. I had always heard the story of my grandmother going to school, getting punished literally physically punished at school for speaking her heritage language, Spanish. So it was punished out of my family before I was even born. So I'm a sequential bilingual. I had to wait all the way until university to learn my heritage language. But even waiting that long to learn my heritage language, I my brain still benefits. I still grow in the frontal cortex and in my left hemisphere. So whether you're a simultaneous bilingual or a sequential bilingual, the research and the brain research lets us know that it benefits your brain and it is especially beneficial for the young learners and it will actually help them read. So this is super exciting conversation and something that I'm happy to be part of. Maya, I love that you brought in your capacity to learn language as a as a young adult in university, because I think often when we talk about the science of reading and building fluent readers, we talk about the importance of young children, which we agree with that. But what about all of the kids who didn't get it the first time? And Horacio, something you've taught us through your work is how impossibly resilient our brains are and our capacity to evolve and grow. The last time you and I had a chance to talk and I said, what are you, what are you thinking about these days? Your answer was, I'm thinking a lot about the relationship between reading comprehension and empathy. And I said, please say more, tell us more about that. So would you talk a little bit about your research in empathy and its relationship to reading comprehension? Sure. Um, the first thing we have to establish is what is him empathy? And I think lots of th think people know they have it, but how does the brain actually do it? Um, when I see emotion expressed by someone else and my brain will pick up emotion in face, hands, posture, gesture, and tonality of the voice. When we see emotion in someone else, it activates motor mirror neurons. Mirror neurons activate motor neurons. So our actual motor neurons in our brains are mimicking the emotion we see other people express. That process triggers a chemical signature. So there is a chemical feeling you get when you smile or are happy. There's a chemical feeling you get when you're upset. There are chemical feelings when you're angry. Whatever it is, that chemical signature occurs, and that is what makes you understand what another person is truly feeling, and that's part of empathy. Then you have an insula that activates, and the insula in milliseconds says, how many times have we seen this similar type of emotion within this context to give us deep understanding? So that's how we understand the social world, and we know it's critical because um, individuals who have autism actually don't have active mirror neurons. And without that ability to mirror somebody else's expression, they don't understand these emotions because when they see them, they don't feel them. Well, the strange thing happens when you read. One of the first things we find out is when you read and you hit a word that has emotion, your eyes linger on it milliseconds longer. Every time you hit those emotional words, 
you actually are activating this process so you get a chemical experience while you read. And that's why books bring out in us emotions. When we read things that are supposed to trigger emotions, books can make us laugh, books can make us cry, books can make us happy or sad, and that is the power of them. Imagine if that does not occur, then you, you're just reading flat words. And it's the same as helping that autistic kid understand someone's emotional expression and you give them a definition. Well, that's fine. When a person smiles, they're happy. But if I don't feel it, then it's just a flat cognitive awareness. And now we know that it is in this chemical activation while you're reading words that have emotion that gives you deep level of feeling. And without that, you actually don't have true comprehension. So if you go back to that issue of poor reader, average reader, and superior reader, one of the things they found out was the poor reader had the lowest level of chemical activation, moderate, a little bit better, superior readers have a higher level of emotional activation. It also tells us something really interesting. People who have a lower level of empathy have a lower level of comprehension. And that's why they don't go towards the humanities because it doesn't mean that much to them. It's just words. And I, I wrote a, a, a section in my last book and it was a paragraph, that, a chapter that began with the experience of what it feels like to be poor. And I've had people read that that were poor and they call me up and they say, you know, I cried, I remembered, I was upset. I, they went through that experience. And that's what I wanted them to actually experience. Could you imagine reading that and feeling all, hearing all the things that it's like to be poor and leave that going, well, it seems like a lot of stuff happens to them. There's no meaning there. And so empathy and, and comprehension go hand in hand. And here's the problem that education needs to face. Empathy has been going down since 1970, folks, mm. consistently. How do we know and not this? with just certain kids, general population. Mm. It, it's a produced the more callous world, but it's producing more kids that don't really care about what they read. And so one of the things that schools can do to get kids back on the train of reading is important is probably working on helping kids understand empathy and exercise their empathy muscles. And one of the things we need to start telling kids is empathy is developed through quality face-to-face -face interactions. And the reduction of that because of texting is hurting their muscles. You're born with the capacity to have empathy, but it develops by your quality of your interactions. And so social interaction and quality is critical for understanding of literature. And so is empathy. Horacio, thank you. That's fascinating. And there's there's so much excitement in the chat that people are saying, yes, like this makes sense. And I think what's so beautiful about the way you describe it is you're talking about neuroscience and these complex chemical reactions in a very human and real way that helps us identify with the neuroscience. And Maya, I'm seeing terms in the chat fly by like mirror neurons and stuff you and I were talking about just the other day. And I wonder if you could um, address some of these fancy terms floating around in the chat <laughs> and what those terms like mirror neurons mean 
when we're talking about the science of reading and we're talking about children and families and teachers, particularly multilingual learners who are navigating so much in our classrooms. Thank you, Carrie. So, you know, my job is to, is at this intersection of research and pedagogy and practical use and what happens in the classroom and really developing uh, content for engagement by teachers and students. So one of the things that we think deeply about, again, is this concept that learning English is the act of becoming bilingual. So if a student in the United States is going to school and learning English there, like we know that they have another language that they've learned at home, then we also understand that they are becoming bilingual. And that context is really important. And it shows up when we're creating um, things for the students to interact with. So when we're creating U, um, UX and UI design. And so what does that mean? It means that we want to create mirrors and windows. So we want the students to see themselves on the screen. So for example, every character that the learner is engaged with is bilingual themselves. It shows the learner who they can become. It's a reflection of who they are and also a, a look into who they are becoming. They're becoming bilingual. So, you know, it's really important that even though we're teaching English, it's within this context of mirrors and windows, seeing myself, seeing a reflection of who I am, where I come from, having the advocacy for the heritage language and for building up this new muscle. In terms of building up the muscle of empathy, it's very interesting because in mindfulness training, you know, there is a way to build that up and to concentrate on it. And as you know, Horacio said, it's something that we're born with. Empathy is actual, uh, it's our true nature as human beings. It's something that we have the capacity that we're born with, and it is something that we can grow. So as adults, you know, you, if anyone on this um, webinar is interested, you can Google meditations, mindfulness meditations for empathy. And basically what you do is you concentrate on creating that emotion from within, and then also extending that emotion through the use of your imagination towards other people. So there, there are multiple ways for us to do that. And I think Horacio talked about smiling. And smiling is one of the easiest, most, you know, kind of accessible ways and it's not to cover over uh, an emotion that we might be feeling that isn't associated with smiling. But if you engage your face in a smile, it will release those chemicals that you're looking for. And it may help you calm enough so that you can deal with a difficult emotion if that's what's happening for you in the moment. Or it might just uplift you enough. And, and with those mirror neurons, if we as adults are smiling at our students, with our students, we will help them engage in those feelings as well. So I love the science around all of this, what we, we know already about the classroom and the whole child and really engaging ourselves and the students together in this feeling of safety and security. It's okay to learn something new. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to laugh and smile when it's hard and you make a mistake and it's all okay. We're in this together. Um, Horacio, I want, I want to ask you about something really compelling you talk about, which is the dark side of empathy. And it's a really unexpected phenomenon. But before we do that, 
I've noticed some um, some traffic in the chat that's trying to reconcile this need for automaticity, this need to really master the basics with this much higher level idea of empathy and an emotional connection to the work and the words that you're that you're studying. So could you talk a little bit about how we simultaneously build empathy and emotion and connection when we're also building automaticity for our basic skills? Yeah, I think Maya was clicking on it. There are lots of ways to build empathy. But one of the one of the ways to build empathy is to engage in enough kinds of interaction that occurs between interpersonal ways that we process emotions. Um, let, let's put it simple, okay? By age one, babies are picking up the emotions of mom and dad, big ones, but they're not really accurate. We get really around nine, we get a little bit more accurate. Then something big happens around 11 and to 13, the response factor. So empathy is supposed to be, I see you in pain on the ground and I don't go like, I know you're in pain and I step over you. The purpose of empathy is for me to see you in pain and go, can I help you? That's the response factor. We're supposed to hit a peak of that between our 20s and 30s. We're supposed to get really good at it. And I know some of you are saying, I date a lot of dudes. They're not really good at it and they're 20 something. Well, yeah, that occurs too because of testosterone. Higher <laughs> testosterone, the worse the empathy is. Sorry. Then around 50 to 50 to 60, what happens is older people tend to have a lower level of chemistry, a chemical reaction to other people's emotion. So that'll, that's where the wisdom comes from. It means that I'm dealing with people's emotion and not getting as emotional. So your grandmother and your granddad should be a place where you can go where it's safe. And then in your 60s, some people lose the ability to pick up negative kind of empathy pieces. And that's why you target elderly for scams because they can't pick up negative kinds of sinister kinds of things. So you're playing a numbers game. A percentage of people lose the capacity to pick that stuff up. So the nature decided we can build empathy through quality interactions dealing with different types of emotions. But the brain learns to do that as you grow and it becomes easier and easier. What we see happening right now is since so many people are not engaging enough face-to-face -face communications, when like adolescent boys see emotions, they are turning themselves away from it because their brains are working too hard to process it. And they just don't want to deal with it because they've been number one form of communication is texting. So it just, one of the ways is doing that. But you can also train people. You can teach people like, okay, there are activities you can do that make you more em empathetic. Like Maya was talking, the visualizing, the bringing yourself in. They're, they're, they're learning how the brain produces um, this whole process really does help you become more empathetic. We now know your emotions come from face, hands, posture, gestures, and tone of voice. If you start to focus on people's face, hands, posture, gestures, and tone of voice, it will increase your level of empathy. So you start, if you learn how the brain does it and start to become more active in producing it and interpreting it, it will increase also. But that was not your real question. <laughs> it was still a fascinating explanation. <clears throat> Okay. I just want to add what something that's super interesting too is this that concept of the wisdom is is um, 
equanimity. And that is something we can practice for as well. And so this idea that, you know, whatever's happening around me, I don't have to engage or I don't have to react. I can respond, but I can respond thoughtfully. And that is something that we can actually practice. It's this, there's a, a little moment in between when something happens and I notice I am concentrated enough and I can notice my own responses. My internal responses is my heart beating faster? Is my throat constricting? Am I, you know, am I responding in some way? That is my conditioning. That's my conditioned response. If I can notice my conditioned response, create some space and, you know, maybe through the breath and just through a pause to then get back to my true nature, which is empathy. And that little moment, that pause between my conditioning and my true nature is called equanimity. And I'm glad to hear Horacio say that it is actually part of our natural process as human beings to grow into that, but we can also practice for it. And we practice for it by noticing how we're feeling in, in any moment of the day. That's why that pause for getting into the moment is so important because if we notice and we focus on it, then we can actually grow that capacity for empathy and for equanimity. Yeah, it's, it sounds like what both of you are saying is it is inherent to us to have this empathy, this compa- this capacity to connect with one another and learn. And we are bombarded with all kinds of phenomenon that interfere with our capacity to do that. So we need to practice, we need to address it. And you're getting so much love and thumbs up in the chat for people who are so grateful to hear you say out loud experiences that we see and we feel every day in schools and in classrooms. Um, Horacio, I wanted to go back to the question I opened with previously, but didn't really ask because I wanted you to address the automaticity and the empathy. but that I believe you discuss in the poverty problem, there is sort of a dark side to empathy and that in-group bias. And that's a very provocative statement. And I think something that may be counterintuitive to a lot of people who are with us today. So would you talk a little bit about that? Well, the same things that produce empathy in us also bias us. And, and so there are two sides to that. And in-group bias basically says that we have an inherent um, biological lower level of reaction to people who look like us because of uh, experience. This in-group bias occurs the moment baby bonds to mom or dad. And so, so at the point where baby has that chemical attachment if you go back to the books, that's straight out of Bolpe, chemical attachment, and it's truly a chemical attachment. And this attachment is one of the things that helps people become socially better adjusted. So in-group bias was actually it's produced out of love. I love my mom and dad, so my brain automatically is attracted to people who look like my mom and dad, and therefore my brain has a lower level of amygdala arousal to people who look like mom and dad. And we know it's that because when mom and dad don't look exactly the same, the baby's level of calm to a wider range of people who still look like mom and dad is also present. Now, um, that is good. And if you didn't have that love from mom and dad, social maladjustment is at risk. 
So that's the, that's the great thing about it. And the sad thing about it is still produces a subconscious lower reaction. So when, if you look under fMRI, most people then for the rest of their life have a lower level of amygdala response, which is your amygdala is your place where you first get emotional arousal. You have a lower level of amygdala response for people who look like you and a higher level of amygdala response for people who don't look like you. The problem with the higher level of amygdala response is it actually pr produces a lower grade level of agitation. And as a result, you have a subconscious bias for that experience. And it's, you don't know it's there, but it's there. And as a result, you have an in-group preference and an out-group preference comes out of love, comes out of empathy, but it does produce bias. That's scary, Horacio. It's scary because it's very different than the way we talk about bias. Um, I think we talk a lot about bias as something that is structural and something that we need to unpack. And it sounds like part of what you're saying is it's part of who we are. And we just need to, if we're more aware of that, then we can be more vigilant. Maya, you're ready to jump right in. Oh, no, I mean, actually, I've heard Horacio, you know, talk about the extension of this. And so like, that's something to be aware of. And if I can just maybe restate a little bit of what I've heard you say, and you, you know, please um, jump in. But like, so then when we're doing diversity training, or when we're doing language learning, what we're trying to do is activate those mirror neurons first, and show how we're alike and human beings are biologically, I mean, we're very, very alike. I think that there's like 1% difference between us all if you can correct me if I'm wrong. So there's so much to, to, you know, bring the amygdala into a state of calm that we can access. And once we've accessed that calm by, uh, you know, accessing what it is that we're alike, how we're alike, how we can, you know, feel, see ourselves in each other, then we can start talking about our lived experiences and our differences and maybe have an understanding and grow that empathy. I don't know, Horacio, do you, I mean, for me, that's how I, before I hand it over, that's how I interpret it. And yeah, that's I how I interpret it in our actual you know, in our programs that we produce, we use technology, we know this research, and we use technology to the best of our ability to actually execute on that research. Now I'll hand it over. <laughs> and, and I think that the thing about once you introduce this topic of bias, um, the problem I find with the topic of bias currently is that people say, here are the things that happen in the world because we're biased. And then we are asking people to artificially sign on to the fact that they are guilty of the things that produce these outcomes. The problem is when we look at the brain, the brain is saying, we're not asking you to sign on to, to admitting of something you don't actually don't think it's true in your real life. We're asking you to understand how the brain produces bias. Let me give you a quick example to show you how subconscious this process is. When I listen to anyone talk, my brain will first say, is there emotion going on here? It will detect emotion, good or bad, in 150 milliseconds. There's a thousand milliseconds in one second. Anything that happens 300 or less is completely subconscious. You have no idea it happens. 
So the first thing that happens, the moment someone's talk, if there's emotion, it's going to take us up chemically positive or negative, and we're already biased right there. By 300 milliseconds, our brain does what is called identifiers. We guess who is talking, even if you don't see the person on the phone. So you hear someone's voice. The moment you hear someone's voice, your brain goes male, female, black, white, young, old, smart, dumb. Your brain is doing all these kinds of identifiers in milliseconds. It is not till 600 milliseconds that you start to analyze words. That's why I tell people words don't have as much significance as you think. Most words are often biased. So let me make sure you understand. Let's say the emotion was negative and the identifiers were someone you don't like. I will guarantee that will influence how you interpret the words. But you're unaware you did this first thing. You're unaware you did the second thing because it was completely subconscious. It has influenced your thoughts and actions, but you're unaware that it influenced your thoughts and actions. So I can't come to you and go, well, you need to change because you didn't even know you needed to change anything. This is why the brain science helps us understand, oh, this is so automated and so happens so fast. It happens to all of us. Now I can understand it. So one of the things about the brain and this other process is in it, not only does it get bias from seeing your face, hands, posture, gestures, and tone of voice, any disproportionate pattern in your environment produces a bias. So um, number one bias in America based on Harvard's work was most black males are associated to crime and violence. Um, not only Harvard's work, but there's a lot of neurobiological studies that use a lot of scanning devices that show that. That's a, that's a statement out there that says, we subconsciously associate black males to crime and violence. Nobody's thinking is conscious. Now, let's go back to that in-group and out-group bias. I show you pictures of different people and we watch your amygdala and your amygdala has a reaction to out-group people stronger than in-group people. So people that don't look like you, stronger reaction. In America, there seems to be a little higher reaction if it's a black face in your out-group. That's because in society, we created a, a pattern of association of black males to crime and violence that has been done so much, your brain just automatically thinks black male, crime and violence, crime and black violence, black males. However, guess who else lives in this society? I do. And guess what? If you put me under fMRI and show me a black male face, guess what happens to me also? A higher tick of my amygdala towards myself. And now start to understand how deep that is. That says, even when it's against our beliefs or values, it's already happened and we don't even know it's happened, but it still influences us. So here's where the science allows us to be free. I know it just happens and I know it happens that fast and I know how bias now works because I understand how the brain produces it. If I'm now saying, I understand how the brain produces it and I accept the science, I am now willing without culpability to say, well, I'm willing now to say, what can I do to put up guardrails? What can I do to protect myself or to 
guard against me doing it because I'm now willing to participate because I can see how it could happen even though I don't know it's happening. And one of the most simple ways to begin this process is what Maya was talking about, with your face, your hands, your posture, gestures, your tone of voice. So I started being very conscientious whenever I dealt with any our group member, and I even had to be conscientious when I dealt with people who look like me, with what I did with my face, hands, posture, gestures, and tone of voice to make sure what it portrayed was the value system I thought I always held. And here's what I saw. The quality of life started to dramatically change. The world became an infinitely better place. And it showed me that I must have been putting off stuff that wasn't there, that I thought wasn't there. It must have been being put off. But here's the magic. Early on, yes, it's work. And early on, it's a focused response. But guess what happens? After you do it over and over and over again, becomes a pattern of your brain. It becomes automated. And now it's just natural. And I tell people all the time, I travel across the United States. I land places where there's no one looks like me and I feel perfectly at home because I understand something about this brain. We project things and now I'm projecting my true values. And if we understand that the brain is doing this automatically, won't we all want to join in on this? And I would say, if we know it's happening and we understand the science, we could partner and figure out how to overcome some of these things without any guilt or tripping or all the other stuff, because I'm guilty of the same influence of my environment that you are. And disproportionate patterns are hurting us. And let me make another point quickly. If you have a low sub, a low performing subgroup in your school, and you check the data every, every periodically, and they're still low performing, over time, guess what? Even the teachers who advocate for those kids all the time start to think that subgroup, low performing. Yeah. You gotta start looking at these patterns that then is likely gonna influence thoughts and behaviors, even of people who love them. And then you can say, okay, if we know this and we understand the science, let's put in things that protect against the things that are probably happening that we didn't even know was happening that we might be participating in without even knowing. And that's the reason we have to then be preventative because you can't guard against what you don't know, but you look at the outcomes and it's gotta be that way, right? Because look at the outcomes, look at the data. Well, they might, some of those kids might not be underperforming just because <laughs> they're underperforming we may be contributing subtly to the underperformance. And, and I don't think that's what we wanna do. So if we understand why, we can do something about the how. Wow, and Carrie, you don't, you, I know you don't wanna hear this, but on that note, we are, we are going to have to, to wrap up our conversation. I'll, I do not want already? to hear that. Already? <laughs> oh, no. well, we want to hear like, oh, I don't wanna hear that. I wish we did. You see how engaged this audience is. They are loving this. So, Carrie, I'll let you wrap up and then we'll go back and finish out our closing um, remarks to the Science of Reading Week. But this is look at the hearts. Look at the look at the thumbs. Look at the look at the claps. I, I just I think what is so overwhelming and joyful about being with Horacio and Maya is this incredible cerebral brain power and science 
And it really, it leads right into our hearts. It leads to what we see and what we feel. It really is, um, they take something that's so complex to understand and make it welcoming and warm and safe for us to grapple with it and find connections to it or say, this doesn't make any sense to me and I don't get it, but man, I want to read your books. I want to study your curriculum. I want to go find you on YouTube because I feel smart and beautiful when I'm around you. And I think Horacio and Maya, you made our participants feel smart and beautiful and seen and heard. So thank you so much for your time and your work. And Cassandra, thank you so much for your facilitation and participants. Wow. So they are still flooded. Do you see this? They're still sending up the emojis. Keep sending those up. Please let our speakers know how much you appreciated their gift of this time today. This was absolutely wonderful. I'm watching the chat at all the words. If you haven't already chatted in, chatted, chat in at least one word that you could possibly used to encapsulate what you um, gained from this session today so that our speakers can see how beneficial this time has been for you. And our EdWeb friends are going to push the PowerPoint back up. There's just a couple of little closing statements and some reminders for you that we'd like to share. And we want to just, first of all, again, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Horacio. Thank you, Maya. Thank you, Carrie for this opportunity to delve deeper into um, this brain science and this brain research. And everyone, we want to see you again tomorrow. Join us noon Eastern for Empowering Teachers to Reclaim Their Joy. I can already tell you, this is going to make all of you very happy. Join us tomorrow. That link will be shared in the chat. Mm -hmm. Also, again, we invite (laughs) you to stick around. You're going to get exclusive viewing access to the Right to Read film. This is a Jenny McKenzie film that shares the stories of an activist, a teacher, and two American families who fight to provide our youngest generation with the most foundational indicator of lifelong success, which is the ability to read. The limited access will be available between April 24th through the 30th during our Science of Reading Week. So you'll see the link in the chat as well and make sure you use that special code that you see that's provided. Again, I am Cassandra Wheeler, Senior Manager of Letter State Success at Lexia. It has been my pleasure serving as your host. I have thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation. Carrie, thank you for facilitating. Horacio, Maya, thank you so much again for your time and devotion to this work. And for the 2,000 of you that joined us today, thank you, thank you, thank you. We look forward to seeing you all right back with us again tomorrow. Goodbye, everybody.